So you have your Bible there, please turn with me to the 24th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Today we're finishing the book. I was in two minds whether to try and divide it up, whether to take the, and then do the last next week, but then I was like, don't be silly. It's only four verses. That's fine. But um, yeah, so we'll look at those and then we'll finish there today. And um, then we'll move on. I have to be honest, it's always very hard to close a book. There's always so much that you think to yourself, well, I could have said this. I could do a reflection. I could go back over the highlights and the mountaintops of the things that have really spoken to me through the other 20-something other chapters that we've gone through. And uh, it's like everything. It's always hard to finish something. you know. But uh, there comes a point when you must finish and then you have to end it. And thankfully... We're only given 53 verses in the 24th chapter of Luke. So when you come to the end, you come to the end. So let me read. We'll read from verse 44 to the end, to 53. And then we'll look at them. Then he, that is Jesus, said to them, that is his disciples, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, that his disciples, thus it is written. And thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. And that repentance and remissions of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he, that is Jesus, led them, his disciples, out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. Amen. Again, it's very difficult for me to close a book. Especially with this. There's, I like to have clear endings. I like to have a nice, neat finish to things. It's my OCD. I like chairs to be a certain way. I like things to be done properly for the most part. And when I come to the end of Luke's gospel, I have questions. I, I say, it's almost sometimes I think, well, that was very quickly drawn up. It's almost as if he had a deadline. And uh, he was over his deadline and just had to finish it. And he says, well, I'll pick it up in the next volume. Here we see Jesus at the end of his earthly ministry, at the completion of his time here, at the end of this particular chapter of his experience. It's not the end of the story, not by any means. No way. Indeed, it's left a cliffhanger. What next? If you're like me and you read this, you think to yourself, well, what happened then? Where did they go? What, where, what what about this endowment of power? What about this taking it to the nations? I have questions. I need answers. I must know. And you go down the rabbit hole of research. Now, we, you and I know in hindsight, with all the distance that we've been given and all the insight we have, that the story picks up again in Luke's record of the Acts of the Apostles or the Holy Spirit. But here... We are left of this cliffhanger. Now, of course, looking beginning at verse 44, Jesus is communicating those important issues, the mountaintops, 
those summary points, bullet points, you and I might say, those memory points. And he's communicating to them. He's communicating to them the biblical nature of his ministry. The biblical nature of the things that have happened. That all of his life, the life of Jesus, from before conception, before birth, before his circumcision, before him, everything was written down about him. His life story was pre-told in the scriptures through Moses, through the writings of the prophets, through the writings of the Psalms. The life of Jesus can be traced through them. And Jesus imparts that knowledge to his disciples that this was always the plan. This was always the purpose of his coming. It wasn't an accident. Things didn't get out of hand. It wasn't a, a, a victory by the forces of darkness in any shape, form or fashion. No, all these things had been predestined. And he tells them that for specific reasons. First, to comfort them. Because they're still in sorrow. They're still in shock. They still have the trauma of seeing their beloved Jesus brutally murdered. Bloodily so. And when you have images like that in your head, they don't just go away. They don't fade away. You, you, you live that trauma. You remember those smells. You hear that as the whip tears his back. You, you, you bear those angers and animosities. Somebody touches somebody you love, you're not going to forgive them very quick. You're not going to forget very quick. There's going to be that Mm, next time you see them in the temple, mm, people have, hold me back, hold me back. Yet Jesus tells them this information. He points them to the scripture that they're able to let go of the bitterness. They're able to let go of the need for revenge and justice. Why? Because they understand and know that God's hand was in this and these things were a necessity. Yes, they, the, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the rulers were guilty of their sin just because they played a, played a part in God's plan did not excuse their sin. But in knowing that God was sovereign even in that action, they were able to let go. They were able to be compassionate. And remember the mercy that had been shown them. That grace, that kindness, that snell hit. That they were able to demonstrate this, the very same thing to the men who had committed this terrible act against Jesus. And we remember in verse 45 that he opened up their minds, whether that is by natural means, by simply just explaining it to them again, or by supernatural means, by something that the, the light coming on, the aha, they have a eureka moment, aha, oh my goodness. But something somehow clicked in them for the very first time. I am very glad about that. I'm a very slow learner. It takes me a long time. I have to ply through books. I'm not an academic person at all. I, I'm a plodder. I have to plod my way through knowledge. And, uh, and I, I feel a fear that I too would have been one of those disciples that would look at Jesus and go, I just don't get it. <laughs> what do you mean? How does that work? And so we see there that the necessity for God to do a work in the mind and in the hearts of men. And that should encourage us all. Because it supersedes, it goes beyond our natural. God is still the revealer of mysteries. He is still the, the God of light. The illuminator. The one who comes and brings understanding. The speaker of secrets. I think Daniel in the Old Testament, not our Daniel. But Daniel in the Old Testament refers to him the Lord as the speaker of secrets, the one who, or the keeper of secrets, the one who knows all the secrets of the world, how 
things are made, how the world works, how everything functions and is fashioned together. He knows all those things. And the Bible tells us that God has the ability, or indeed the Lord Jesus Christ had the ability to allow his disciples to understand that he opened up their minds. They understood their comprehension, their ability to understand and to get a hold of and then to be able to explain. Because that's very important as well. We see that in, in martial arts. You know, the, the instructor explains something, shows a move, and then he stands up and says, so do you get that? And everybody's like... <laughs> and then he'll say, well, show me, show me what I just did. And then someone... And we understand that a person doesn't really understand unless they're able to demonstrate the move successfully. And the same thing goes for Christianity. We, we, we have a concept, we have a, a rough understanding of what God has done for us, but until we're able to verbally explain it, and it doesn't have to be you know, super intellectual, but in childlike and simple terms, we know that we don't really have a grasp of it. It's one of the reasons why we, we, we try and go through the statement of faith with people when they come to our church, God willing, most of the time, try to. And I ask people, I always ask people when they come into membership, especially now at least, my experience has taught me this. Tell me your salvation experience. I remember one young woman telling me, oh, I've always been a Christian. I've always been a Christian. I was born into a Christian family. My father is a minister. I've always been a Christian. I was just in our line. I'm one of those blessed people born into a Christian family. And I said, well, tell me about your sin. Well, I've never sinned. You know, I, was, I had the glory of being brought up in a Christian house, good parents, went to Sunday school, been to church all my life, never sinned, never drank, never smoked, never said a bad word. And genuinely, she was a good person. But you and I know that sin is much more darker and cleverer than that. I spoke to her about, so have you never been angry? Have you never been sad? Are you telling me that you've loved the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Have you never desired something that you haven't had, like with all the biyar? Have you never looked upon a person with lust in your heart and should look at her feet? All have sinned and fallen short. And this young woman had no real understanding the doctrine of original sin and the, the doctrine of the need for repentance. She didn't feel that she needed to repent of sin because she didn't feel that she'd ever sinned. So Jesus is explaining to his disciples these Things, and he's doing it for a specific reason. And he opened up their minds. And that should be a great blessing to you and I in our day. That we are not limited by our earthly abilities. That God can and does and will open up our minds. And allow us to understand and comprehend the mysteries of scripture. And I would... Honestly, say that God probably does do that to everyone who is a believer. That all of a sudden it, it makes sense. I remember as a young man when I came to faith, uh, I, I tried to read the Bible once because I wanted to disprove it. I wasn't a Christian and I wanted, and I tried it and I, and I got like maybe. 13 chapters into Genesis, like, yeah, I can't do this. Got all those names and begot and begot and all this. And I was like, yeah. And then tried to read something from the, the New Testament. I think it was the, the book of Hebrews or something. or It was one of the, the longer general epistles. And, and it, it was just, just, I couldn't get it. And I put the Bible down, hadn't a clue. But yet, Within that year, I came to faith and the Lord saved me. And I picked up the Bible and it was like every page spoke to me. 
Every chapter spoke to me. I had this little, I went to the secondhand bookshop and I got a little pocket Bible uh, in, the original, in the original King James. <laughs> in the King James. A little tiny one that fitted into my, into my, my uh, blazer pocket because in my school we wore, we wore blazers and ties. And so I, I'd have, and every time you would see me when I wasn't supposed to be doing something else, I would be reading, 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 going through. And it just, my mind was opened and my heart was opened and I was, I, I loved it and I understood it and I was able to explain it to people. Why? Because God did a work in me. And that should bring us great joy. It brought the, the disciples great joy. And then Jesus goes on in verse 46 goes on to the, explaining the necessity for the suffering of Christ and for his rising from the dead. That's repentance and the remission or the cancellation of sins should be preached in his name and only in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And there we saw the divine plan that the gospel... The good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, of repentance and the remission, the cancellation of sins, that that message would go global. It would begin in Jerusalem locally, but it would go to all nations, the entire world, through all generations. That is the plan and the purpose of God. It is not simply that this church should exist or any church should exist, but it's rather than Christ's story, his message, the declaration of what he has done should be taken to the very ends of the earth, to every tribe, nation, and tongue, so that those for whom Christ died, who are among those people, may believe in him and receive that gift of new life. So they were, the divine plan was explained to them and through the inspiration of Scripture to us as well. Verse, 40, verse 48, that you're witnesses of these things that they had seen with their own eyes. Not only that they had seen, but they were the, the instruments by which this message would be spread. Again, I think I said this last time. I used to read this with the eye or the understanding that, that they were the ones who had witnessed these things, that they had saw with their own, they had experienced, that they, they knew them to be true because they saw them. But really the idea here is that they are the ones who speak forth what they have saw. They are the communicators of truth. They are the witnesses, the ones who come forth and tell you what has happened. And Jesus points to them and says that they are the vehicle by which this message shall be transmitted to the earth. And as they, the church of that generation, were his witnesses, <coughs> and subsequently all generations since then, who have experienced this enlightenment, who have received faith from on high, who have repented of their sins and had their sin debt cancelled. Now they are the witnesses of Jesus Christ in their generation. And in our generation, that duty, that burden, that responsibility is now passed to you and to me. Though we are his witnesses. We are the ones through whom the message must be communicated. It is your responsibility and it is my responsibility. It's not just the pastor and the preacher's responsibility. But it is all those who have believed in him. All of his disciples, the them. In every circumstance, in every situation of our life. As we walk in harmony with the Holy Spirit, He will open up experiences, open up opportunities, open up the hearts of those around us, and they will come forth and ask and inquire 
and opportunities will be given to us that we'll be able to speak, preach, maybe not in a formal setting like this, but over a cup of coffee in the supermarket, at school or at work, around the kitchen table while you're getting your car fixed, I don't know. But as you walk in harmony with the Holy Spirit, divine appointments are given to you. Open doors are given to you. And you're able to be his witness. And I I said last time again, the word witness there, of course, is the word martyr. Not one who simply dies for his faith. Not one who is tortured and burned or stabbed or whatever happens but one who will endure all things for the truth. One who will stand firm through all circumstances of this life in order that they might proclaim clear, clearly that which they have seen and heard and experienced with their own hands, that which they know to be the truth. We are called to be living martyrs in this world. To be those who triumphantly and joyfully live for him. And that, again, duty and burden, responsibility has been passed to you and to me to be his witness in this generation. And then he goes on in verse 49, Behold, I send the promise of the Father upon you, retiring the city of Jerusalem. Now we know that 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 power from on high, that unction, as they used to say in the 18th century, that endowment, that dynamic power that has come to the church. It's been poured out on Pentecost. We have the record of it in the book of Acts. That promise was kept and that power is still alive and vibrant in the church. We all know that it's the word dunamis, power. We all know that that's where they get the word dynamite from. But in in Greek times, when you talked about dunamis, you didn't think dynamite. And you and I think dynamite. Oh, I know that word, dynamite, explosive power. But they didn't think explosive power. They didn't think splash, some guy with a twirly beard and <laughs> tying women to trains, tracks, and things. No, cowboys and Indians and trying to blow up banks and stuff. None of that came into their mind. When they thought of the power, they thought of a, the, the power of a bow when you release an arrow. And the power thrusts the arrow towards the target. They thought of a man throwing a spear. And that power that releases the spear driving it to its target. They thought of the power of a horse when it springs, or an animal, mostly horse in the example that I know. The power of an animal to leap over a, a, a hurdle or to break through something. It was that explosive release. It was the kind of power with a function. Not just an, a, a random energy explosion that you know, goes everywhere. But it had focus, it had drive, it had purpose. When you shot the arrow from the bow, it was to the target, it was to accomplish something. It was the arrow which strike the target. When the man threw the spear, he didn't randomly just throw a spear or a javelin. He was propelling it to a target. When the horse or the animal jumped over a, a barrier, a fence or whatever it was... It wasn't doing it randomly. It was for the idea of clearing the hurdle. The power was given for a purpose. Think more of a bullet with the black powder behind the bullet. When the black powder explodes, the bullet is propelled down the barrel. That's the kind of power that we're talking about here. And the power of the Holy Spirit was given to the church in order that we might do what? Fulfill the ministry of being his witness in this world. And we are to understand and take 
comfort or security in the fact that we have the power to accomplish that which Christ has given us to do in this life. The power is there. Think of a rocket being thrust into space and how much power it needs through the atmospheres. You and I, spiritually speaking, have been given that power. It is available to us. It might not have the dramatic noise and effect and shockwave visibly. But it is there. And nothing can hinder us. Nothing can hold us back. No more than you can take a bullet back from once, once you shoot it from a gun. No, no more than can you catch an arrow once you've shot it from the bow. No more can you stop a spear when you cast it in the or javelin. The boys and I were watching a, the world's famous javelin thrower. I can't remember his name. Uh, just amazing. 97 meters or something kept throwing it. Unbelievable. But imagine trying to catch that javelin in the air after it had been thrown. Foolishness. God has released this power to his church. And it is available to us. And nothing can now prevent us from fulfilling the purposes of God in this world. Not our fears or our doubts. Not our sins or our failures. Nothing. Not the plans and purposes of the kingdoms of this world. Not the schemes and the plots of the devil and the kingdom of darkness. Nothing can prevent Christ's kingdom from coming. Indeed, Jesus declared that he shall build his kingdom. Not even the gates of Hades would be able to prevail against it. It's unstoppable. The church is unstoppable. And we should take joy and comfort in that. Though we look upon ourselves and say, well, we're little. Or we're, we're without any real meaning, you know. There's so much more people in other places. Yet we understand that Jesus, when he left, his disciples numbered 120 were only gathered on that day. And they were gathered in an upper room behind locked doors. They were not confident or bold or strong in themselves until after the endowment of this power which enabled them to obey. And then today we're at verse 50. As he led them out towards Bethany, as far as Bethany, Bethany being what two miles, I don't know what that is in kilometers from Jerusalem, it was the town or the little village, the suburb perhaps one might say, hamlet, neighborhood connected to Jerusalem where Lazarus, Mary and Martha lived. It was the Jesus was very familiar. It is towards that direction where the Garden of Olives lay. Jesus is very familiar with this area. His disciples would have been very familiar with this area. And it says, as he was leading them out. Now, on what day? We do not know when this happened. We do not know. But as he was leading them out, and it says, he lifted up his hands to bless them. It's a very normal rabbi thing to do. Nothing spiritual, nothing Benny Hinn-like. He wasn't doing anything supernatural, except that he was blessing them. He lifted up his hands to heaven. Again, a very rabbi-like gesture. Blessing them, praying for them. And it says in verse 51, I think this is like one of the craziest verses in all of Scripture. This is one of the most monumental and magnificent moments in all of church history. And we get this little one tiny verse on it. Of course, Luke talks about it in more clarity in Acts. But here you would think that we make much more of it. But we're just told what happened. Like in the past when he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. He's taken. One moment he's there, the next moment he has been taken. It's not like what happened with the, the um, 
two disciples on the road to Emmaus where he was just taken, blink and he was gone. It's not talking about that. It's literally that he is lifted up before them. He's taken up into heaven until it tells us in the book of Acts, a cloud hides them, hides him from their sight. And he is carried up into heaven. And then something amazing happens. Because that, that's amazing in itself. I mean, that's, that's, wow, you know, your mind would be blown. But then something happens in verse 52. And they worshipped him. This is the first time the disciples have worshipped Jesus. In a real, true, real sense. This is the first time where Luke talks about them worshipping Jesus. You have to understand the significance of that. These were Jews and it was forbidden to them to worship anyone but God. Any worship of any other person, idol, thing was idolatry and it was a sin. And yet here they are giving worship unto Jesus. In their mind the question was settled. He is Lord. He is God. He is Yahweh. And they worshipped him. I would imagine much more than just words. But words are definitely part of it. Part of worship is the proclamation of the truth. The declaration of his divinity. There is a, an ejaculation of, of joy that comes out of you. There's... Think how people who are idolaters, and we know in, in our day the greatest idolatry is sports. People worship sports teams, entertainment, pop music. You think of how the pagans worship their gods, their sport deities, their movie star deities their pop star music rock whatever they are deities and you see I remember the the video of of the Beatles coming off the plane when they when they arrive in America and the thousands of young girls screaming and they have their conf not the conference sorry their concert they have their concert in in America and the crowds are screaming so much so that they can't hear the music and the Beatles just stop singing and the screaming is still going on. There is this absolute worship of these foolish young men. And we are told that the disciples worshipped Jesus. How that former fashion of worship looked, we do not know. We can only speculate that it was the declaration of the praises and honours and the, I would say, the quoting of Scripture, the quoting of Psalms, praising God with the language that God has given us. But more than just words, but with their spirit, we are told here that they were that they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. There was emotion involved in their worship. There was emotion, or should we say that the, the response of their worship was great joy. Their worship produced great joy because they, they understood and they saw they comprehended that Jesus is God and that all things according to his plan and purpose are happening and that everything that's been said about him is true and everything that's said about him that will happen, will happen. And they had the confidence of that. 
Now, outwardly, their circumstances were still the same. They were still a tiny little congregation and, and deep in the heart of enemy territory. They were the only ones who believed in Jesus. Indeed, to speak in the name of Jesus was outlawed. You could go to jail, have all your property seized, get sold into slavery, perhaps. And yet, inwardly, they're fearless. Or shall be. But here, with great joy. And it says here that they were, in verse 53, they were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. And ends, Amen. It's very interesting that the Gospel of Luke begins in the temple in Jerusalem and ends in the temple of Jerusalem. It begins with the the promise of the coming and ends with the fulfillment of the coming. There is the idea of that which had been promised has now been delivered. And now we're living in the fullness of it, in the reality of it. We've come to the end of the book. And again, as I said, it leaves me with question marks. I would like to know more. I want more information. Fill me in. And of course, that's what the book of Acts does. But there, there are questions about these things that are written here that I need to know. I would like to know. But the Holy Spirit has withheld them from us. We do not know. And there are no answers. We, we must just take what has been given and move on. But what we can see here is that we who are the church, we who have just traversed through the life, the biography of the Lord Jesus Christ as written by Luke, we, we understand who he is, we reflect, we, we, we remember the promise at the beginning. We remember the, what happened with, with Herod and the babies in Bethlehem. We remember the angels. We remember the story of when he was a, a teenager getting lost at the temple. We remember the, the story of his baptism and the encounter with John. We remember... His ministry, the miracles, the hardship, the difficulties, the vast crowds. We remember the impossible things that he did. And the many things that he said. And how unlike any person who's ever been, Jesus was and is. We remember that though he was regarded as great and mighty... And could do all these powerful things. He was a person who hid from the limelight. He did not seek popularity. He did not seek fame and fortune. He had no interest in it. We remember the man Jesus. Because that was our our goal as we went through the book of Luke. To get to know Jesus. To know who our saviour really is. How he acted and reacted. How he presented himself. Because sadly the version of Jesus that we we normally have in our mind's eye. is, Is all too often a product of modern TV. A product of our own idolatrous heart. I would like a Jesus like this. I would like a Jesus like that. I think Jesus would be like this because I'm like that, you know, man. Our dream boat, our dream man. What we would want from a savior. And the, the God's honest truth is that if we had met Jesus back then, we may have been disappointed in him. We may have met him and thought, I don't see what all the fuss is about. He's not that good looking. He's not that talented. 
bit scruffy. There's nothing really about him that, you know, he doesn't have this tremendous personality that just gives you inspiration. But then he'd probably look at you and if he was to talk to you and communicate, there was then that just something in the background. Something in the background. And anyone who spent time with Jesus was always transformed and changed. We have traveled through the 24 chapters of the Gospel of Luke and we have traveled with Luke through the life of Jesus in order that we might know him. But what, for what end? To what purpose? Why? Just so that we can say that we preach through all of Luke. Just so that we can say that we have looked at every miracle, every deliverance, every healing. We have examined every conversation of Jesus. But for what purpose? Beloved, as we have traveled through Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and we have examined the life of Jesus, it should produce in us that which the disciples experienced. We should worship him. Luke wrote his gospel in order that you might worship Jesus. That you might have a legitimate cause to worship Jesus. That you might have a firm foundation in your worship of Jesus. That when you worship him, you worship him for the right reasons. Not because of your imaginations or your experiences. I worship Jesus because he saved me. Cool. What does that look like? Well, I was having a really bad day and I had a headache. And I said, oh, Jesus helped me. And he helped me. My headache. I took a tablet and my headache went away. Praise Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Beloved, that's not a legitimate reason to worship him. We worship him because we understand that he has been promised from before the foundation of the world. We worship him because we know him to be the one who was destined to come, the prophet, our prophet, our priest, our king, our God. Luke's gospel, as in all the gospels, as in all the scriptures, were designed in order that we might have a reason to worship Jesus. Let me ask you, do you worship him? And is your worship the product of biblical inspiration? Because you know what God has done for you. You are required to worship him. You know what I was thinking about this week, this, this week. And it really is always, when you think about it too much, it challenges you, always. Do I worship him? I know him to be the saviour. I know him to be my king. I know him to be my lord. I know him to be my God. I know what he has done for me. Granted me repentance and cancelled my sin, my debt before God. And has adopted me to be his child. And will never leave me nor forsake me. And has prepared a place for me in heaven that I might be with him forever. Enjoying the blessedness of heaven, the goodness of God forever. Do I worship him? Do I worship him? Am I grateful? Yeah, yeah I'm pretty grateful. Yeah, pretty grateful. Do I worship him? Now, I'm not saying we should go all charismatic, beloved, and roll about the floor and shake maracas and sing the same song 15 times. No, 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 no. But there should be, should there not, there should be a sense of awe there should be a sense of he is so great and I am so small. There should be a declaration of I am so putrid in my sins. I am so unworthy of his kindness. I do not deserve it. But yet, here he is lavishing out his love on me. 
luxuriously pouring it out. It's not just a case that he's saying, yeah, okay, come on in. But he is like the father of the, the parable of the prodigal son running to me. He is running to you to embrace you, to put a ring on your finger, to put a robe on your shoulders, to put sandals on your feet, to get you washed and cleaned and prepare a banquet in your honour. There is the desire to be with you. God desires to be with you. He doesn't take you reluctantly. Oh, I guess I have to take you. I guess I have to accept you. But rather, there is this hunger for your your company and that the realization of that as we have walked through Luke as we have got to know Jesus as we are familiar now with him we shouldn't be disappointed we shouldn't be apathetic and complacent it shouldn't produce in us some sort of nominal yeah worship Jesus yeah great ooh Jesus yeah 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 I examine the worship of the people of this world. The heresy of the charismatics with their worship. That uncontrolled pagan worship. I look at the sports fans of this world with their tens of thousands and fifty thousands. Remember when I was in Bilbao in the north of Spain and they have a Bilbao Athletica, I think their football team is called. None of us know. Don would know, but we don't know. Um, Fifty-two thousand people in in their in their their arena. That's fifty-two thousand plus the football team, of course. And when their side scored a goal, I'll always remember when their side scored a goal, the whole of the city felt the celebrations. Even though the stadium was on the other side of the city from where I was living, when they scored a goal, the whole city felt their jubilation. And everyone smiled. And everybody, even if you weren't at the football match. And I, even I, who didn't like football, I felt the joy, the excitement that, yes, we're beating them. I didn't know who they were, like, but yes! If that is the emotion and the expression of joy, if that's the, the effort that the people of this world will make over foolish things like football, over vaporous things as in imaginary worship by the charismatics, they worship imaginary gods who, of their own making. But they do so wholeheartedly. They offer themselves up without restraint. I mean, if they could, they would tear out their own hearts and give it to God. You cannot fault them on their effort. They have zeal, certainly zeal without knowledge. But they are zealous in their worship. Should we not? We who are the reformed. Oh, I really dislike that word, the reformed. It kind of makes us think we're settled. We're somehow the best. Brandies and cigars for the boys. Should we not be more passionate? Should our knowledge, our knowledge, our actual knowledge, our actual real knowledge, biblical knowledge about the Lord Jesus Christ not inspire us to worship him in spirit and in truth all the more? On an individual level, personally, you, you personally, and we collectively as a church, if you don't worship individually, if you don't worship personally, you can't worship congregationally doesn't work for we are the sum of our parts and if we are not worshippers individually we cannot be worshippers together doesn't work that way you ever try to drive a car with several flat tires you can't even pull it out of the hole that it sits in 
Beloved, we were created for good works in him. And first and foremost, we are to be a worshipful people. And we are to sincerely worship the Lord Jesus Christ in all that we do, think, say, feel. And I fear that we as reformed people, I hate that expression, have become hardened and cold and apathetic in our worship, lazy and lethargic with all of our knowledge of Jesus, for all of our understanding of theology and stuff, all too often we can come across as cold and unfeeling or unenthusiastic, critical even. We can intimidate people. The hardness bleeds off. And... Our Christianity or the expression of our Christianity can be joyless because we are not a worshipful people. Again, I think of my time in the charismatic Pentecostal church and though the majority of people there knew no theology, they sought to be a worshipful people and that bled into joyfulness for the most part, in their experience. The Gospel of Luke ends with a worshipful people who are full of joy, who are continually meeting together, praising and blessing God. And if we desire to see an increase in Christianity, in people coming to faith, in an interest in the true and real religion. If we desire to see revival, a revival amongst God's people, then perhaps it needs to begin with us and our worshipfulness and our understanding of Jesus. If your understanding of Jesus, if your experience with Jesus doesn't lead to a greater worshipping of him in spirit and in truth, then there's an error in the code somewhere. Somehow, someway, something is lacking. Something isn't right. And needs to be put right. Perhaps you need to bow the knee. Perhaps we need to Again, I'm not, please, please, please don't start being all charismatic and falling down and jumping up and down and being foolish and stupid. Let's be responsible. Let's be responsible in our worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. But your relationship and your understanding and of all we have walked through and gone through in our examination of the scripture doesn't lead you to a more worshipful experience of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is something wrong. This story was told in order that you might worship him. And that by worshiping him, you might be full of joy. And that your joy might lead to a congregational experience. I'm all about the congregation. Church life. That we meet together regularly. And in doing so, we praise and bless God. Oh, beloved, let us seek to be a a worshipful people. Let us begin to declare him and to acknowledge him and to recognize him and to trust him and to be excited him and to do great things in his name. Not to be afraid, not to be inhibited, not to be bullied by the doubts and fears in our minds. But to know that he who left will come back the same way he went. And all those things that were accomplished were spoken of in the Old Testament and were accomplished in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. Well, all the things that speak about his second coming will come to pass. Perfectly so. Without 
any difficulties or problems. Therefore, let's have confidence in Him. Let us have confidence to know that the Hades will not prevail. Let us be confident, know that the, the devil will not prevail. Let us be confident, know that you and I can't muck it up. Isn't that awesome? That's <laughs> great to know. Let's worship Him for being God and for being in control, for actively interceding on our behalf for not leaving us without a witness, for not leaving us without power to accomplish that which we, which we need, what we've been given to do. Worship him. Beloved, worship him. I, I like the old, in closing, I like the old-fashioned, like the, the ancient world. People would get up in the morning, whether you were pagan or Jew, Greek or whatever, they would get up in the morning, the very first thing that they would do, they, they would get on their knees, and they would give devotion to their God. Whether you were Hebrew, Greek, pagan, and then Christian, that's what they did. They would get up and they would give thanks to their God. Indeed, if you were a Jew and you lived in Jerusalem, you would get up and you would go to the temple for morning prayers. If you're a religious Jew, you would do it in the evening time. You would give thanks. And you know, the, the Romans, you know I love the Romans. The Romans are cool guys, kind of. They had, they had gods for everything. They had the god of the shoes, you know, so you're, you're tying your sandal with your straps and you'd be praying to the god of sandals that the strap wouldn't break. You know, you'd, the god of your breakfast, the god of the wine. And the pagans were more religious than you and I. You and I had been brought up in a, in a Darwin Pagan, not even pagan, atheistic age when we no longer have a sense of spirituality, no longer have a sense of, of what worship is. But beloved, you and I who really know Christ, we should be worshipful. There should be the, the heavy scent of worship about us. There should be the expression of joy because we know our God. And are confident. We not only do we know him, but we know what's going to happen. We we know the end of the book. Ha ha ha! I know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen. I know what's going to happen. And I am confident. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the witness of the gospel of Luke. We thank you, Lord, that you have led us and directed us and guided us. You have revealed yourself to us. You have shown yourself in your thoughts, your words, your actions, your deeds. You have demonstrated time and time again your holiness, your goodness, your mercy. You have shown us time and time again your, your lordship, your kingship. You've shown us time and time again how you intercede and act on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, that you demonstrated your great mercy and kindness and goodness, your grace through your death. And Lord, we thank you that you demonstrated the, the success of your mission through your resurrection. Lord, we thank you that you revealed your divinity, your true nature. And we pray, oh God, that you would help us. Lord, truly we are men and women of our age. We are devoid of spiritual impressions, Lord. And all too often we behave in a pagan-like way. Lord, we ask for forgiveness. We ask, oh God, that you would do a work within our hearts and our minds, that, Lord, truly we might be able to change, that we might be able to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, not just by singing hymns or waving hands or clapping or things like this, Lord, but that in everything and all things we might declare that you are God that we might declare your righteousness. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with joy. Joy at the prospect that we will one day be together with you in heaven, that, Lord, we will never experience the, the terribleness of hell, that, Lord, we will always experience your goodness and your mercy and your great love and favor and your delight and how, Lord, you favor us. We are truly grateful for these things. Lord, I pray, help us. Lord, help us that we might fulfill your word. 
Help us, O God, that we might be your true and real servants in this world, that we might demonstrate to the people around us that we are a worshipful people, full of joy, that, Lord, we love to gather together with the saints to praise you and to, to bless your name. Oh, Lord, help us to fulfill and to continue in the duty of preaching the gospel to every nation in this world. Lord, we ask this for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen.